salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in my teens, I remember going to malls in Ontario, and there would often be a, a booth or a stand in the middle of the mall, which was selling family heraldry, family crests. You could give them your last name, and they would type it into a very primitive computer at the time, and it would come up with this wonderful history of your family. And it didn't matter what your last name was, you were certainly descended from royalty or very close to it. And they would print this massively beautiful um, crest that was obviously carried by your ancestors as they sullied forth from their castle to go to battle. Everyone was a noble because everyone wants to be a noble. That's what human beings are like. And so that's not new. Back in the olden days, in ancient times, on the steles, on the monuments, in the written records of ancient civilizations, whoever gets to, to write the history makes themselves look good and will conveniently leave out, conveniently leave out all the stuff that makes them look bad. And we have examples of that in the scriptures, certain foreign kings being roundly and soundly trounced by the armies of Israel. And, and you read the historical records of those ancient civilizations, and they, they skip over that part. They want to say only the things that make themselves look good. And the Bible sticks out. In all of ancient history and all of the ancient records, the Bible is radically different on this point because the Bible doesn't cover up the bad stuff. On the contrary, the Bible is brutally honest to the point where sometimes when we're reading at the table with the family, we think, well, maybe I should skip this chapter. I'm not sure the little kid's ears can handle the stuff that the Holy Spirit has recorded for us here because the Bible doesn't doesn't cover it up. In all its ugliness, the Bible shows the weakness and the sin, not just of people in general, but of the people of God. And not just the people of God, but the very leaders and great ones amongst the people of God. Now you remember what's, what we're doing here in Genesis. We, we have that line, that, that golden uh, line that goes from Genesis 3.15. The mother promised, God says, Someone, a, a, a descendant of Eve will be born who will crush the head of Satan. He will destroy the power of the kingdom of darkness. And so from Genesis 3.15 on, we're looking for the Messiah, for the Savior to be born. And what's important as we go through the Old Testament is to see the line of the Messiah. It's so important that God's people remain alive and that the next generation is born because the Savior of the world must come. And as you look at how the Holy Spirit describes this progress from Genesis 3 right through to the first chapters of the New Testament when Jesus is born, you see that God is teaching us a lesson. He's showing us that the Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, is not a Holy Messiah because he is part of a line of, a, of descendants who are really, really good people. 
And that every generation, they're just better and better and more and more powerful until finally Jesus comes as the apex of this great line of heroic and godly people. That's not at all the way things happen. It's the opposite. When we read about all the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a miracle that the Messiah could possibly be born from a line of people that are so messed up. And that's what we see here as we're looking at the record of Father Jacob, our father in the faith, as he's there in Haran looking for a wife. Now think about this. All around the world, there are billions of people over thousands of years that have read all these little details of what went on in Jacob's life, all his mistakes and sins, all the little fights between his wives, all the stuff that happened within his tent. It's all out there for everybody to see and for everybody to know. And this is our family history. This is our story. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our ancestors in the faith. And we see in the stories, the the historical record that the the Holy Spirit records here, we see intrigue, we see deception, sin, betrayal, conflict, jealousy, discontent, covetousness. We see Jacob flagrantly ignoring God's revealed will for the creational ordinance of marriage. Read what we just read and tell me if Jacob was here today whether he could be elected as an office bearer in this church. He wouldn't make the nomination list. Nah, sorry, strike that name. Look at the guy's life. Look at his family. He could not be a leader in this church. Got four wives. That's a problem. And he's not showing love and tenderness to his wife Leah, his first wife, who should be his only wife. He's dealing with her hatefully. Why does the Holy Spirit record these things? Well, brothers and sisters, it is for our comfort and instruction. God averts evil or he turns it to our benefit. That applies to external catastrophes like accidents and disease. But it also applies to our own sin. You remember when Joseph was sold by his own brothers as a slave, And he went to Egypt and he was stuck in prison for a long time because his brothers sold him as a slave. And when finally things went better for him and he ended up being the guy in charge in Egypt, and then you remember that Jacob died, this is in the future of course, and and the brothers were afraid that Joseph was going to get revenge. And then Joseph called them together and said, listen, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's very important. Even when sinners sin, even when people commit great evil, God is sovereign even over that and can turn it for his glory and for the good of his people. God is patient. God is slow to anger. And God comes to us in our brokenness. Now, God is more of a gardener than he is a mechanic. What does a mechanic do? The mechanic looks at the machine or the motor, the engine, 
He says, this part's broken. He rips it out, puts a new one in, and we're done. A gardener doesn't do that. A gardener doesn't take a, a, a tree which is kind of curved and, and violently reef it upright to break it. He doesn't do that. A gardener patiently prunes and he, he binds up and he stakes it and he straightens it and he's patiently waiting for things to get better as he ministers to this tree or to this sapling, to this plant. That's how God works with us. He's patient. He's incredibly patient. And the more you read through the scriptures and the more you look at your own life, you realize how patient God is. Now, this is the true story, the true history of redemption, that God is putting up with Israel very much covered with a lot of the filth and the wrong thinking and the sinful ways of the world. The Bible says, when Israel was a child, I taught him to walk. The Old Testament church was very much a child. Paul says that the law was a tutor, was a teacher, a pedagogue to bring the Old Testament church to Christ. So in the Old Testament, it's the childish phase of the church. And there are things that you put up with in a child that you don't put up with in an adult. Think about that. If, if your little one-year-old grabs the, 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 the chocolate and kind of misses their mouth and rubs it all over their face, you, you think it's cute, you post a picture on Facebook maybe. But if your 17-year-old does that, that's a problem. You don't accept that. So that's the way God acts with the church as well. He puts up with things in the Old Testament that he wouldn't put up with now. So our families, our families and our lives today, like Old Testament Israel, are full of a lot of messiness. There's a lot of stuff which needs dealing with, which needs to be fixed. And, and sometimes we may ask ourselves, as we look at the brokenness of our lives, we can say, well, how can I be a child of God? How can I even serve God in so much imperfection, falling short? And as we read through texts like today's text, we get comfort because God's purposes will stand. God's plan will be carried out. God will be glorified in Christ. God's people will be saved in Christ despite our failings, despite our shortcomings, despite our imperfections. Salvation comes to us not because we are so good, but because Christ is so good. And so that same dynamic of patience with the childishness of Old Testament Israel and the time of the patriarchs, God also shows it in our lives, that same dynamic, that patience as he waits for us to mature in Christ. He is kind, patient, and loving. So let's look at the, the text here in front of us, and we're going to go through it a little more quickly than we normally do go through texts. But you see there in chapter 29, if you have your Bible open, that Jacob is at the well. Rachel comes with her flock. She's a shepherdess. Now, she's got maids. She's got money. It's, they're not a poor family. But there she is working. And you see that our fathers in the faith were not afraid of hard physical work. Jacob was strong. He was used to hard work. And that's why he can even roll away that stone, which normally took a bunch of guys to roll away. When he sees 
when he sees his future bride, then he gets extra strength and he pushes it away all by himself. So they're not afraid of hard work. They're used to hard work. But this picture at the well is so different, isn't it, from the time when Isaac's bride was being sought because Abraham's servant came to the well and he had camels and he had, he had uh, armed men with him and servants. He had lots of gold and precious things. Jacob has nothing to give, nothing except his strength. And so that's what he gives. He, sp- he stays with Laban for a month and, and it goes without saying that he pitches in. He doesn't sit around and do nothing. He's part of the household, there's work to be done. He steps up and he does it. It's a lesson that some of our children sometimes need to learn. And so Jacob works hard, he works hard for a month and then Laban Laban looks like he's worried about Jacob. I don't want you to work for nothing, but we know Laban, don't we? He's the guy that got real excited when he saw the gold last time. He wants something out of this. He can't get gold, but what does he get? He gets 14 years of hard labor. Now, take your annual salary. I assume you think you work hard. I think you do. Take your annual salary, multiply it by seven. Now, now double that. That's what it cost Jacob to get his two wives. That's what it cost Jacob to get Rachel, who was the wife that he wanted to marry. That's a lot of money. Laban gets a lot out of this deal. But there's something beautiful in this, not from Laban's greed, but there's something beautiful in Jacob's willingness to work to win his bride. There is a foreshadowing here of the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, so that by his work he would purchase for himself a holy bride. As you go through the scriptures, you see little pictures and little patterns which repeat in smaller and larger ways like fractals and then they all reflect the big story of the world and that's what's happening here there's a little picture of Christ in this hard work of Jacob to win his bride but Laban deceives after seven years of hard slogging Laban deceives and there's something striking about that isn't there because Jacob is a deceiver And the deceiver gets deceived. He gets a taste of his own medicine. Not so long ago, in the darkness of his father's blindness, Jacob the younger took the place of Esau the older. And he deceived his father in the darkness. And now that happens to him. In the darkness, Leah the older takes the place of Rachel the younger. And so Jacob reaps what he sows. The deceiver is deceived. There's not just deception, though, but there's greed. And we know that, right? Because he he insisted on Jacob working for 14 years in total. So deception and greed together. And, And this deception and this greed of Laban, they condemn his daughters to a lifetime of conflict, of mutual hostility. Laban's greed, Laban's deception sentences his daughters and their household to misery and to conflict. 
Now, Jacob should have insisted on the, the right way, the, the high road. Jacob should have insisted on marrying and loving one wife because that's how God created it to be at the beginning. And Jacob knows that. Jacob knows the stories and the history of the garden of Adam and Eve and the creational ordinances. These things are known to him. But he doesn't follow that. You see, it's always easy to justify sin when sin is conformity to the world around us. We do that so often ourselves. The Bible is pretty clear, but then we look around and say, well, everybody's doing this. And I know that it kind of doesn't seem to be biblical, but everybody's doing this. And a lot of Christians too. So I'm going to do it as well. That's what Jacob does. In the culture of the time, you could take several wives, and that's exactly what he did. But it's not just several wives. It's not just polygamy here, but it's incest because he has two sisters as wives. That is explicitly condemned in the law, which comes later, but which reveals the will of God. Leviticus 18, verse 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. Rival. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is telling us. That's what happens. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be a rivalry. Uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. That is sin against God's will. And sin comes with built-in punishment. You've noticed that, right? That when we sin, sin destroys. Sin brings death. Sin, sin brings pain and hurt. It, it has built-in punishment. Because sin by nature destroys and so by Jacob choosing to go this route, he brings pain and grief upon his family. And he makes it worse by having a favorite. Now, if you have your Bible handy, look at Proverbs 30, verse 23. Proverbs 30, verse 23. The scripture says, Proverbs 30, verse 23, that there are some things that are so unnatural, the earth cannot bear them. The very creation trembles and cannot bear up a bunch uh, in the presence of certain things. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food. Now look at this, verse 23 of chapter 30. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. That is so against nature that it causes the very earth, it shakes the foundations of reality. It's not supposed to be that way. It is not supposed to be that way that a married woman is unloved. It is wrong. And you, as we read that, you re we read that together, and you see Leah just longing to be loved by her husband. And child after child, she's, she's saying, well, maybe now he'll love me. And, and, and she's having children. So that means that he's being intimate with her, but without love. And that is an abomination. That is a vile and wicked sin for a husband to have intimate relations with his wife without love and without tenderness. And the Holy Spirit tells us what that is. It is hatred. That's what it is. It is hatred to use your wife as an object to satisfy your perceived physical needs, your desires, 
is a shameless or shameful sin against God. In fact, it is blasphemy because the marriage relationship ought to be so pure and so holy that it reflects the love that Jesus has for the church. And for a man to use his wife as an object for physical pleasure without loving her with true love is to blaspheme the relationship between Jesus and the church. And that sin will be judged in this life and at the great judgment day. And if there's any woman listening here or online who is so being mistreated, you need to know that this is abuse, that this is wrong and unacceptable, that your husband is breaking the marriage covenant, and you need to seek help immediately. You should not live in that situation. So there's Leah, unloved and used by Jacob. Then chapter 30, verse 1, there's Rachel, and she is full of envy. She has love and no children. Leah has children and, and no love. And, and sin is not being satisfied with what you have. You, you always want what you don't have. And, and there's this constant discontent. And so, so Leah's desiring something which is in line with God's will. Leah's saying, I, I wish my husband loved me. That's a good proper desire, but Rachel is wanting what someone else has. That's not the same thing. It's not a natural expression of the desire to have children. She's comparing herself with her sister, and we see that later. She's wrestling with her sister. She's competing with her sister. She wants to beat her sister. She wants to win, and so she tells Jacob, give me a kid. Give me children, and you see Jacob Losing it here, and this is what happens. The, the more sin just uh, gets settled into our lives, into our homes, the more stress, the more conflict, and the more anger and outbursts. And this is not a home full of peace here. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob knows his theology. He knows the truth that, that God is the God of life. He is the one that gives new life, and that he is sovereign. He is the creator. It's his decision. Now, in this case right here in our text, Rachel not having children is divine chastening, is divine discipline. And especially in the Old Testament, it was often connected with some kind of punishment for a woman not to have children. In the New Testament, with Christ having taken away the curse, the Lord teaches us that this is not normally the case. It is not normally discipline or or even curse, but that when in the New Testament period, the Lord determines not to give children to a certain couple, then it is because he is setting them aside to a special calling in his kingdom. But what we all need to learn here and understand is that God opens and God closes the womb. We worship him for his sovereignty. And, and sometimes you see couples, and especially newly married couples, and they seem to have the idea that fertility and having children is like going to the kitchen tap, and you want water, you turn the tap on. You want no more water, you turn the tap off. And we live in a culture and a society which treats children like that. 
So, well, we're going we're gonna to get married, we're going to save money for six years, and then we're planning to get pregnant. Oh, really? And you can decide this? The womb is not a tap which you can open and close, brothers and sisters. God gives life. God determines the creation of new life, and we need to live in a way which shows that we know that and believe that. And then verse 3, Rachel comes up with a solution. I want children. I can't get children. I want to beat my sister. Use my maid. Have children with her. Now, Rachel should have known, but Jacob certainly did know the family history. He knew the past. He knew his grandfather, Abraham. He knew Hagar and Ishmael. He knew the pain that was caused by introducing another woman into the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. He should know better, but he obeys the voice of his wife. Without hesitation, he goes in now to another maid, or to, to another woman. This brings more rivalry, more shame, more brokenness into the marriage relationship and family. This was the world's way of forcing God to give you children. If the woman couldn't have a child, you use another woman as a surrogate or as a, uh, you use a maid who's owned by the, the wife and therefore her children are owned by the wife. That was the world's way of dealing with infertility. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, so what? I mean, this is thousands of years ago. Why are you telling me this? Well, brothers and sisters, that same attitude exists today. There are worldly ways of dealing with infertility. We've got to be aware of that as Christians. Sometimes Christian couples can be so desirous to have children that they look around and say, well, this is what the, the medical uh, people have, have for me, and, and, and these are the opportunities that we have, and so let's just go. And they start going through all the different processes without stopping and thinking and praying about it and figuring out, well, is this something that Christians should even be doing? And so you need to be thinking about that. You don't just blindly adopt the world's solutions. You, you, you need to make sure that you're doing it as a child of God. There are certain uh, mechanisms and therapies for having children which include use, the use of pornography, and a Christian simply can't do that. There are certain procedures to produce children in the case of infertility where some of the children conceived are killed by the doctors so that other children will survive and have a better chance of surviving. No Christian can participate in something like that. So we need to be thoughtful. We can't just blindly follow the world's solutions unthinkingly. There's no blessing in that. We are children of God. And everything we do, we do thoughtfully, prayerfully, intentionally according to the will of God. And so Rachel grabs on, latches on to the solution of the world, and there goes Jacob into his wife's maid. And then look at verse 6 of chapter 30. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. I made my husband sleep with my maid. She had a baby. God has heard me. Wait a minute, Rachel. Are you sure about that? Don't we do that often? We, we sin, we choose our own solutions, and then when it kind of seems to work, we say, look, the Lord's blessing it. 
and we know that we're deceiving ourselves. But it feels good to deceive ourselves, and so we keep on deceiving ourselves. So there's Rachel with the child that supposedly is an answer to prayer. She, she's recruiting God to support her envy, her discontent, her sin, her desire to beat her sister. And like I said, we do that too. And when our sins work out, we pretend that it's a sign that God approves. And then look at verse 8. I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Here we see what's in her heart. There's no holy thoughts here, no gratitude for God as the creator of life. It's not a beautiful thing. It's not for God's glory. It's for her envy. It's for her lust for power and status over her sister. And then look at verse 9. Leah starts playing the same game. She's been competing for Jacob's attention, and she wants to have the most children. And there, one of the children comes in, Reuben, the firstborn, comes in. He's got mandrakes, and mandrakes at that time, and still today, I think, in certain circles, mandrakes were seen as having some kind of power, some superstitious power to give fertility. And that's why Rachel wants them. She wants a child herself. Give me the mandrakes. Give me this superstitious thing which might help me to have children. She's willing to, to reach out for anything, no matter how far away from God it is. And then Leah uses this to buy Jacob for a night. You, you get the picture here, it just gets worse and worse. This is not a pleasant situation. This is not a healthy, well-ordered family living a godly life. This is a broken mess. This is not how marriages ought to be. This is not how families ought to be. It's a dysfunctional family. You look at the list of names there. Reuben is the firstborn, but he doesn't get the firstborn rights because he ends up in the future sleeping with one of the maids who is his father's wife. Simeon and Levi are number two and three. They don't get the, the blessing of the firstborn because they go and kill a whole city full of guys in their vengeance, deceiving them and falling upon them when they're just circumcised and can't fight back. And so they don't get the blessing of the firstborn. And then later on, all the children, all the guys will gang up on Joseph and will sell him into slavery. That, we, re, we read about that, so we just kind of think, well, that's what happened. But look at your brothers and sisters and think, wait, what if all my brothers and sisters grabbed me and sold me to a slave, a slave driver? Like, how can people do that? There's something terribly wrong with this family. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of anger. There's envy. There's violence. There's conflict. And it goes through the generations because even when each child has become a tribe, those tribes are still at each other's throats. It goes on for hundreds of years. Well, that's a lot of unpleasant stuff that we talked about. Why did the Holy Spirit record this history in all its gruesome and shameful details? Why did God call us from our homes on this beautiful day so that we could hear all these very unpleasant things about Jacob's life? Well, God is teaching us. He's teaching us who we are. He's teaching us where we came from. 
This is the people of God. This is the beginning of Israel, the Israel of God. We are members of this covenant people. And God is telling us, these are your origins. And there's nothing to be proud of in your origins. In fact, if you want to get a picture of how God describes it, go to Ezekiel chapter 16. I've, I've gone there with you a number of times over the last years. But I want to drive it home here. This is God describing the origins of the people of God, of the covenant people. Ezekiel 16, I'll just read the first uh, six verses. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. You know, you have preachers nowadays saying, you know what, you are so sweet, you are so precious, you are so valuable that God can't live without you. He so needs you so badly. He's just hoping against hope that you will accept him and that you will do him the honor of spending eternity with him. You are so precious, so precious, so valuable. But God says the opposite. God says, well, when I saw you, my people, when I cast my eye upon you, my church, you know what you look like? You looked like an abortion. You were a child thrown into the field, just rolling around in its blood and dying. There was nothing attractive about you. And we have to agree when we read the history of God's people. There is nothing here for God to say, wow, what a great family. I really want them to be the family that is the founding family of my church and my people. There's nothing beautiful here. We're not God's people because we're so good, we're so lovable, we're so valuable, but we are God's people despite our unworthiness and our sin and our shame. And when we understand the messy beginnings to God's covenant people, then we understand why our hope is not in man, but our hope is in the Messiah, the Christ. The failures of Jacob and his family to live according to God's promises and purposes contrasts with Jacob's great son, Jesus Christ, who keeps God's law perfectly. And so we see as we read through the Old Testament, God is at work in our family history. He's fulfilling his promises in Christ. And no amount of human sin, human unworthiness, can derail God's plan to save for himself a people chosen unto everlasting life. God is at work here. And he is sovereign over everything. He doesn't make people sin. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't cause us to sin but he is sovereign over even our sin and its consequences. And so I want to just end briefly pulling back and looking at this whole scene from the point of view of God's sovereignty. Look in verse 31 of chapter 29. 
when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. God is in control here. God's opening. God is closing. Look at verse 32 of chapter 29. The Lord has looked upon my affliction. God sees. He sees the sin. He sees the brokenness. He sees the pain that the sin and brokenness cause. He sees and he acts. Look at verse 34 of chapter 29. Again, she conceived and bore a son, said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name will be what's called Levi. Levi. Who is Levi? He is the ancestor of all the priests in Israel. This is the tribe of priests who will preside over the ceremonies at the temple, which speak of the blood of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. There are little bits of gospel built in here. There are little pointers to what God is doing. Even though people are sinning, God is working out his eternal purposes. Look at verse 35 of chapter 29. Judah is born. Who is Judah? He is the royal tribe. He is the tribe of the kings, the Davidic line. He is the tribe that is in the line of the Messiah, the great king of kings who will be born in Bethlehem, David's royal city. So it's kind of like when you look very close at a, a painting and you see all splotches of black and, and, and other colors and they're all smudged together. And if you look really close, it looks kind of messy and kind of ugly. But when you pull back, you see the big picture. And that's what we see when we pull back and see God operating in history. Look at verse 17 of chapter 30. And God listened to Leah. God hears her cries. He listens and he gives her a son. Leah gets it wrong. Look at verse 18. Well, God gave me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. She thinks God is rewarding her for helping her husband sleep with another woman. She's wrong. But God hears the desire of Leah's heart to have a child, and God answers her cry, even though she is really messed up with how she understands what's going on. He hears the cry of his daughter, and he shows mercy. God doesn't say to Jacob and to his wives, he doesn't say, listen, you get your life all figured out and get it all in order and live properly, then I'll start loving you. But in all their brokenness and all their shame, God keeps loving them. And then you look at verse 22 of chapter 30. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She's been silent for the last bit, for the last verses. It seems like she's stopped scheming, and now she's praying because it says God listened to her. So she's talking to God now. She's doing the right thing. And God gives her Joseph. God gives her Joseph. May the Lord add to me another son. Joseph, the name sounds like the word in Hebrew for adding. But, but Joseph doesn't just add one son to the line of the patriarchs of the Redeemer. God will use Joseph to save the covenant people from dying out in the famine. Joseph is a messianic figure. He is a figure who will save the people of God from destruction and death. Without Joseph in charge in Egypt, the patriarchs would have died of starvation. Jesus never would have been born. And so again, look closely, you see a big mess. Pull back, you see God at work. Because Joseph will be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you, as you read through the Bible, over and over, you see that. You, you look closely, 
and you see the smudge and the, the messiness of sinful, unworthy, imperfect people and all the mess-ups in their lives, pull back and look at the big picture. You see God at work. That despite human sin, God is working out his sovereign, eternal plan to bring about the birth of the Savior of the world, to save a holy church, to make all things new in Christ. So for all his weaknesses and sins, Jacob is our father in the faith. He is a patriarch of the people of God. He's anointed prince of God's people, a Messiah. He is a Christ, a prophet, priest, and king. And I'm not just making that up. That's what the Bible says. Look at Psalm 105 and verse 15. Psalm 105, verse 15, talking about the patriarchs. I'll just read verse 12 and on. When they were few in number, Psalm 105, verse 12, when they were few in number of little accounts, sojourners in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he's talking about. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Anointed in Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah. In Greek, Christos, Christ. Touch not my Messiahs. Touch not my Christs. Jacob was an anointed leader of God's people in all his brokenness, and all his sins and imperfections. And if God could use Jacob, God can use you. You are God's anointed. You are a Christian. You share in Christ's anointing. You have the, the office of prophet and priest and king. God has given you a job to do. And he's given you a role to play in the advance of his eternal kingdom. Now, if you look at your life, as I do at mine, and you see all your sins and weaknesses, all the brokenness in you and your relationships and your family, you probably feel inadequate. And you are. We are. We are inadequate. But Christ is more than adequate. And your life in all its failures, in all its imperfections, in all its brokenness, is part of God's eternal plan to bring about a new world of eternal joy. God's love and plan are not hindered by our imperfections, but God transforms brokenness into beauty. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for those upon whom God has set his love. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all things, even our mess-ups, all things, even our brokenness, all things, even our sins and their consequences, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That is the gospel. Amen.